Hey, it's Angel, your friendly neighborhood doula. I am so excited to have you here on the Birth Cafe podcast. Here, we'll talk about all things birth, pregnancy, and postpartum. As a certified doula, lactation counselor, and perinatal educator, I hope to provide you evidence-based information on interesting topics while also having fun and open conversations about the perinatal period. This podcast is for birth professionals and parents alike, and I hope that you enjoy what you hear. So grab your favorite cup of tea or coffee, sit down, get comfy, and let's get started. Hi, everybody. It's Angel here from the Birth Cafe podcast, and I have an amazing guest uh, that I have on my podcast today. And today we're having Dr. Stu Fishbein from Birthing Instincts. Dr. Sue, oh gosh, I'm so excited to have you here. I actually, I first heard about you through Kylie. Uh, She's the autonomy mommy and she built this whole doula program. And your interview was my favorite. Like (laughs) out of her whole program and all of the, you know, interviews that she did, yours was my absolute favorite. And so I'm like, I have to talk to this guy he is so funny. He is so real. And, you know, you you talk about things with evidence-based and you're all for autonomy and informed consent. And I listen to your podcast every week now. So welcome to my podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? Angel, thank you. I'll, I'll try to live up to those glowing words and do my best to make you laugh a little bit today. But also we'll be talking, obviously, on some important topics uh, that a lot of people don't understand because the medical model doesn't think like, well, they only think in one little way. They think in their little box. And for me, um, as you maybe know a little bit, I, I spent uh, 30 some years in the medical model and my evolution was uh, slow. I came out trained like that, thinking that pregnancy is an illness and a, and a disease and things you have to breed and fix and you're a ticking time bomb when you're pregnant. And, and then I, you know, gradually work with midwives. And over the last 12 years, I've been doing home birthing and collaborating with midwives. And I really have seen uh, the birthing world from both sides. So I think I can bring a perspective that a lot of people who only live in one box cannot do. So I hope that that will be appealing to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you kind of give us like a brief overview of how you kind of got into this work? What's your background um, and all that good stuff? (laughs) Yeah, so, um, you know, I I went to the University of Minnesota. I I didn't really want to go to medical school. I just didn't really know what else to do. (laughs) In undergrad, I wasn't, this wasn't a a lifelong dream of mine to become who I am right now. Uh, when I was young, I, I thought maybe I would be a forest ranger or do something outdoors like a marine biologist because I, I liked biology, I liked science. Uh, then when I was uh, in, in undergrad, um, you know, we had to make a decision about what we're going to do next. And sort of a lot of my friends were going to medical school, which is kind of what my peers did in those days is they, they, bought, they took over their dad's business, which I didn't have. My dad sold bicycles, which was great. And I always had a nice bicycle, but it wasn't a business that I really wanted to go into. And then, uh, so I, you know, the, what were my choices? And one of them was medical school. And, and so I went pre-med and, and I got into the University of Minnesota Medical School and I went there for four years. And then something that happens that a lot of your listeners probably don't know it's called the match, which happens to every third or fourth year, actually a fourth year medical student on the third Wednesday of March, I believe, everybody, all fourth year residents open an envelope and it tells them where they're going to be doing their training because they've been interviewing uh, training programs and training programs have been ranking you and it all goes into a machine and comes out. It's called the match. And I matched in Southern California at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And uh, it's not really where I intended to end up. I really intended to go there and then come back to Minnesota. Um, but I was lucky because I had a really good residency program. I got a really good job offer after, but in the residency program, which really has affected my life afterwards, is I got trained in in the things that they're not training anymore because they were just considered normal in the early 80s. And that's things like breaches and twins 
and uh, forceps. And the things that make my profession unique, as I, as I like to say, you know, I always think that if an OB doesn't know how to do a breach and sections everything or sections all twins, um, what good are they? I mean, really, really, what do they do that another profession doesn't do? So I was lucky and I came out, but I, I came out very medicalized. You know, I was the guy wearing the hazmat suit, cutting the cord right away, walking the baby over to the warmer and, uh, you know, not even thinking twice about recommending bottle feeding and hepatitis vaccine and vitamin K and all those things um, because that's how you're trained. But as part of my career building in the early 80s, when you came out of residency program, you didn't get a job working for somebody in those days. You had to build your practice. And along with covering ERs and covering free clinics and assisting other guys in, um, uh, in surgery just to try to get, you know, make income while I'm building a practice, uh, I was approached by some local midwives and asked to be uh, their transport physician. And I said, sure. But I didn't say sure because I thought midwifery was a good idea. Probably at that point, if I remember correctly, I probably thought it was stupid. I probably thought home birth was foolish. Um, because that's what you think when you're only, you know, when you're only drinking one flavor of soda, you don't know there are other flavors of soda. And um, but slowly over that period of time, as I would take their transports and we'd have lots of time to sit around in the hospital after the woman got her epidural and got her Pitocin was just, you know, being brought in for non-emergent reasons. Um, and every now and then there was an emergency and then that's where my skills jumped in. But otherwise we'd sit around and in the lounge and I'd be talking to midwives and I'd hear a whole other way of doing things. I'd actually see another way of doing things. And so I began to sort of seep in and it really had to take a long time to replace the indoctrination that I went through in, in residency. And, um, I realized that a lot of what I knew did not apply to about 80% of the pregnant women. I knew very little about normal birthing and I didn't really know how to do nothing. Uh, and this is what midwives have taught me along, among many, many other things. And gradually, of course, after about 10 years of that, I, I started a collaborative midwifery practice in the hospital uh, in Ventura County because Cedars didn't allow midwives to have privileges at that time. So, and for 15 years, we did really good work there, but we were never accepted in the community. We had a C-section rate of 7%, and we took all comers, and the midwives took care of all the normal stuff, and I took care of all the, you know, the, the slightly abnormal stuff. Like if some woman had an abnormal pap smear, then I would do the colposcopy. If a woman had needed surgery, I would do the surgery. If a woman had a breech baby or twins, baby, twins, I would do that. If she needed a C-section, you know, and the midwives were taking care of her in early labor, and she needed a C-section, then I would come in and do the C-section. And it was the way obstetrics really should be practiced. But we were never accepted in the community and we were always ostracized and we were always picked on. And after about 15 years, they found a way to get rid of us. And I don't know, people who listen to me know the details, but they they actually um, just decided they weren't gonna renew our privileges. And I had the, the, the option of battling them in an administrative process, which is, which is futile for the most part. Or and even if I won, I would win the right to stay at a hospital that wasn't happy to have me there anyway and would be looking for reasons to make my life miserable. Or I could go off and do home birthing. And even after 25 years of being with midwives, um, the first home birth I went to, I was really quite nervous. <laughs> I still remember, and I'm really grateful to the women that, that chose to have me go to their homes at that point in my career and then, and then had beautiful home births. And didn't have any problems because had my first birth been one of the rare things that can happen at home and been a problem that would have changed everything and then i got bolder over the years and i started to do things like breaches and twins at home and i started to think to myself why can't a hypertensive woman not a preeclamptic but why can't a hypertensive woman or a type 1 diabetic have their baby at home what's so different about their labor that means that they have to be in the hospital and they have to be induced and they have to be denied um, the golden hour and they have to be immobilized and starved and interrupted and they have to have all those things happen to them. Why? Just because they carry this one diagnosis, which, you know, diabetes 50 years ago was a much different disease than it is now because women now, well, men too, but I don't take care of men, but women now, um, uh, they have like implants. They look at their phone and you know what their blood sugar is and they can push a button and give themselves insulin. 
it's a whole different ballgame than it was before. So you can control them much tighter. So I started to do these things and I published a couple of papers and, and one case report. And um, and now I'm, I took a sabbatical this past year and I went around teaching. I did 12 breach seminars since April. It's now November. So I, um, I taught about 240 people. I think we do about 20 people per seminar on average. And um, there's two days we talk, we have lectures and then we have lots of hands-on work. And I think that these, these people, some were doctors, not very many, mostly midwives, some doulas, people just curious can come and learn about breech birth and twin birthing and practice it so that even if they didn't plan on actually doing breech birth in their practice, that every now and then someone's going to have a surprise breach and people aren't going to know what to do and there's going to be a problem. And if you know about breach and you know the simple cardinal movements of breach, then um, you know when you can be, it's really fun to do. The breach course are fun to do. But my colleagues are so scared of it in the medical world because they've been indoctrinated to believe that it's dangerous. And that, you know, they, I used to use the word misinformation, but you can't really use that word anymore because it doesn't mean what you think it means. Misinformation now means, you know, probably truth that the regime doesn't like. So <laughs> it's really the whole word misinformation, but they're misinformed and they don't know that and they don't want to know it because expediency suggests that doing a C-section for all breaches in most twins is um, just a lot easier. So, yeah. and so now my job is really, not sure that I'll go back into clinical practice again. I may take a client here and there, but I really don't wanna be on call. I've been on call for 40 years and after being off call since April, I realized what I've been missing. And I really <laughs> want the last third of my life to be spent going to bed at night and sleeping and waking up, whether it's to wake up at 5.30 or 6.30 or 7.30 and knowing that when the day is mine, so. Yes, yeah, that's awesome. You yeah. know, I'm so thankful for the work that you do. And eventually, I'm just gonna throw this out here, maybe Cleveland, one of these. <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, I'm gonna be in Indiana on January 28th. So oh, good. If somebody, good. What we need is somebody to sponsor us. And there's, they, and we don't, have, this is not a sales pitch. Go to the website, people can go to the website, they can go to the, events or, or, or uh, teaching section, and they can click on, they can fill out a form, which then we'll respond to about what they're looking for. So if somebody in Cleveland wants to sponsor it, um, and I'm, by sponsoring just means finding a venue and that sort of thing. Right, yeah. Right. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, I have clients who, and you you probably know, like I'm a doula, a childbirth educator, and I, I work a lot with breastfeeding moms as well, but it it's, painful when I have a client for me just to see how stressed she is because her baby's breech and she's like here in Cleveland we we don't really have any providers that are going to be like willing to do a breech baby I mean we have like one who I feel like on the down low will like <laughs> do it but you know I know and like having my clients stressed out just like what am I going to do? My only option is either a C-section or to attempt an inversion. Um, and that's pretty much the only options that we've got for moms that have a breech baby. So, I mean, my first question is going to be like, how do you think we got so off track with breech? And now instead of, oh, having the skill to do breech, we now just go straight to the C-section. Um, I want to just respond to what you said before. You said something about um, it should be a time when, you know, they're all stressed out in this last few weeks of pregnancy because the baby is breached. And my friend Kimberly, who's in the documentary, Heads Up, The Disappearing Art of Breach Delivery, says it really well. She says, you know, the last month of pregnancy, you should be blowing and nesting and resting and getting excited. And then she said, no, I had a lot of work to do. And I had to find, I had to struggle to find options and choices because they weren't offered to me. And that's, that's tragic because it should be a time when you are just getting ready for that great event to happen. And it's not because my colleagues fear birth and they fear breech birth more than normal birth. And they project that fear onto the women who then have no, you know, and then there are very few choices. It's not because it's dangerous, it's because there's a lack of choices. So how do we get, okay. Um, 
you know, I don't I don't know the full history of it, but I know in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s that breech birth was just considered a variation of normal. It was taught as a normal skill. And it was considered, you know, like I said earlier, it was considered something that was kind of fun to do. And then, you know, like academia tends to do and everything else, they tend to meddle with stuff. They're always trying to figure out new things and they're going to study. They study everything and they, you know, do you need a study to tell you that it's safer to cross the street when the light is green than when it's red? <laughs> but they would tell you, yes, you do, because you have no evidence. All right. But, and then you mentioned earlier, you said the term evidence-based, and it's like, well, evidence-based medicine is, doesn't mean also what you think it means, because it's only as good as the evidence that goes into it. And most science these days is either consensus opinion or corrupted. Two-thirds of all ACOG guidelines are consensus opinion, which what do you expect when you get five or six academic and maternal fetal medicine doctors in the same room? What are they going to tell you? And um, on an anonymous study, 65% of, of researchers admitted to committing fraud in their research. And that's percent wow. that admitted it. You know, <laughs> I suspect that it's probably higher than that. So yeah, it's yeah. very hard to even know what to trust anymore. Yeah. And a lot of people just follow blindly because it's just easier to put your head down and follow blindly, as we saw over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then to actually challenge your question, because if you challenge your question, you get beat up, you get beat up because somebody is benefiting from the status quo and somebody is benefiting from making these changes. And what happened probably in the 70s or 80s or maybe even before that, people began to study breach delivery and they began to look at things, but they did studies that were not really good. They didn't control for certain parameters about who is going to go into labor with breach, you know. What are the criteria used for selection? What is the skill of the people that are actually providing the service? Those sorts of things. They just looked at raw numbers and they always looked only at neonatal death as the endpoint. Almost every paper in obstetrics, whether it's the RIVE trial or the term breach trial or anything else, they're looking at neonatal death or neonatal mortality or morbidity as the only outcome that really matters. And it's a very important outcome, but it's not the only one that really matters. And what they're not looking at is what happens downstream. If you section all breaches, you may save a few babies, right? But you're going to lose a few mothers. And what are you doing to all those future babies? Because now you have them have to deal with the VBAC issue and the potential for yes, placenta and uterine rupture and all those things. That, so you might be protecting that first baby a little bit, but all you're doing is transferring the risk downstream to second, third, fourth babies. One of the questions that's funny, uh, Angel, that I ask a consult when they come in for, as a prime, if they come in for a breach consult and they've only been offered C-section by their doctor and they found out about me through their doula usually. Um, and they come for a consult and the one question I ask them that I've never had, the, I've always had the same answer. And the question I ask them is, did your doctor ever ask you if you want more children? And the answer is universally no. They never asked me that. Because for the doctor, all that matters is the baby in the bassinet. And what happens in your next pregnancy is not their concern at this time. It's not because they're bad people. It's because this is the culture and the system they're, they're taught in. So sometime in the 80s or 70s, there were papers that were coming out that supported vaginal breech birth. And there were papers that were coming out that supported C-section for breech birth. And this went through the 80s and into the 90s. And breech birth was still taught in the 80s because I learned it. And I was a resident from 82 to 86. So um, uh, it was still taught. And then in 2000, a paper came out called the Term Breach Trial, which I'm not going to dwell on. It was a very flawed paper, but it was very, it met the model by which academic medicine wanted to practice. And so it was readily accepted. And was, there was no critical thinking. There was no stage two thinking. And if you look back at that paper, as they did two years later, you wonder, how did this paper ever get through peer review? Because it's so, it was there's so many flaws in the paper, and almost every paper that's come out since on breach delivery finds that yes, there's a slight increased risk of morbidity to a, a vaginal breech birth over cesarean breech birth, but nowhere, nowhere as risky as this one outlying paper, which is the one they all relied on. And the other thing that's important for people that are listening to think about is really it's not fair to compare vaginal breech birth to cesarean breech birth. 
What you should compare is vaginal breech birth to head down vaginal birth. And what's the difference? And the difference there is minimal, right? If you actually compared head down vaginal birth to cesarean for vaginal birth, I mean, cesarean for head down babies. Wow, I've got too many things going into my head. Um, you find that cesarean section is probably safer by a very small amount over vaginal birth. So should we section all head down babies too? No, wow, because that doesn't matter. They want to practice, yes. In some countries, that's coming. You see, you see C-section rates in Brazil and Armenia and South Africa of 70, 80 yeah, percent. And what are we yeah. doing? And again, what are we doing to our species? Yeah. And the, and the ability of future generations of females to, to um, uh, go into labor. Yeah, yeah. If they've never experienced labor and, and they don't know how to, does, will it change over time? Yeah. And are we altering things? But of course, that's not anyone's concern if your only concern is baby in the bassinet. Right. It's so it's so crazy that you mentioned that because that is a huge focus in the classes that I teach. I um, I'm a micro birth uh, baby instructor, so I learned a lot about like the microbiome and how birth, pregnancy, and breastfeeding affects babies' microbiome. And then when we start to eliminate things like not doing skin to skin. When we start to eliminate vaginal births, how that affects the baby's immune system long-term and they're at higher risk for developing allergies and metabolic issues and immune disorders and all these different things. And like you said, and I've talked about this too, like we talk about healthy baby, but I really think what they are meaning is an alive baby, like it's alive. <laughs> It's not really healthy, right? It's it's just no, I mean, if you look if you look at some research by like incredible people, you can see that chronic illness in children has gone up from single digits in the 80s to 50% or higher now. And there's only two things, well, there's more than two things, there's environmental things too, but there's two things that I can think of that have really increased since the early 80s. And that, and one of them is cesarean section. The rate has gone up. Uh, electively scheduled cesarean section rate has gone up. And of course, the other one is the uh, childhood vaccine schedule. Uh, another topic for another day. But um, something is causing increased chronic illnesses in children. So you're right. That's a very clever thing that you said. That people say, well, we want a healthy baby and healthy mom. Well, are we getting either? Exactly. Are moms healthy when they've had a C-section that maybe they didn't need? And then they know that. And then for the rest of their life, they're stressed about it. They're disappointed about it. They're depressed about it. You know, this is off topic a little bit, but you said I could go off topic. So I want to talk about the, the C-section rate for a second. Because the C-section rate in 1970 in the United States was 5%. And now it's over 30%. So let's just say 30%. That's a 500% increase in the cesarean section rate with no change in the rate of cerebral palsy or, or you know, um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. A slight drop in the stillbirth rate, but, but not significant. And not, and not directly linked to the rise in C-section rate, certainly not justifying it. But the World Health Organization says the C-section rate in Western countries should be 10 to 15%. All right. In the midwifery model of care, granted they cherry pick their patients and they have lower risk patients, the C-section rate is somewhere between two and seven, maybe two and ten percent, depending on their, your population. But they say it should be fifteen percent. Let's just say fifteen percent because it makes easy math. And the C-section rate in the United States is thirty percent. So what does that mean? By according to the World Health Organization, it means that half of all C-sections being done in the United States are probably not necessary. Now there's 4 million babies born in the United States every year, give or take. So that means there's about 1.3 to 1.4 million cesarean sections being done. It's by far the most uh, prolific operation being done in the United States, by far. And, and let's just assume that half of them are unnecessary. Well, that means that there's 700,000 unnecessary surgeries being done on women every year. If there were 700,000 unnecessary knee surgeries or mastectomies or gallbladders, or tonsillectomies for that matter, um, people would be outraged about it. And you know who else would be outraged about it? Insurance companies would be outraged about it because they're paying for surgery that, that, that's not necessary. But no one says a peep. But here's the kicker, Angel. 
if half of all the C-sections being done are unnecessary, who's doing them? Because nobody goes home at night and says to their honeys, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. Right. Every C-section a doctor does, he or she believes is necessary, yet half are unnecessary. Right. So how do you justify that? How do you rectify that in your own mind? Well, one, you don't think about it, which is one of the tools of cognitive dissonance, is you just ignore it. The other, the other thing is you blame the other guy. You say, well, it's not me that's doing the unnecessary ones. It's that guy over there that's doing the unnecessary ones. But he's saying the same thing about you. Well, so, I've actually, I actually had a client who she was attempting a VBAC. And she, I mean, it's her choice. And she did really good advocating for herself. But the doctor says, well, I mean, labor was taking a long time. And by long time, I mean, she's been at it for like 10 hours, which is not a very long time. No. I mean, really. But... She was just like, well, we could do a C-section. I mean, you're only dilated this much. And I mean, baby has had some D-cells. So I think that long-term, we should just end up doing a C-section. And she's like, it's not an emergency, but I think that it'd be better for you and your baby. So like, she admitted that it was unnecessary. <laughs> she's like, it's fine. It's not an, it's not an emergency. <laughs> Don't go home and think that she did an unnecessary surgery. It won't yeah. even occur to her. And the thing is, the skewing of informed consent, which is exactly what you just described there, and the use of coercion, even you know, even subtle coercion is coercion. Um, and then the language that she uses, you know, you're only this, you're not going fast enough, this sort of thing. Um, these are all subtle biases, subtle subtle uses of coercion uh, to get people to funnel them down the path you want them to go. And this is what we all do. And, and when I say we all do, I say we all do that. The difference is, is that some of us are aware of it and try to acknowledge the fact that we have these biases and others are unaware of it or purposely deceptive because they want to go home or for whatever reason. They, they want to just move things along um, and they don't understand how, how interfering with birth causes this rise in, in interventions. You leave a woman alone, you're going to have better outcomes. You may have bad outcomes, but you have bad outcomes in the hospital all the time, despite all their technology. Right. The, the newborn intensive care units are often filled with babies, not the little preemies, but they're filled with seven and eight pound babies who came into the hospital inside their moms in perfectly fine condition. Mm -hmm. Somehow they ended up in the NICU and we're, we're supposed to be grateful that we have a NICU. Right. It's like, right. wait a minute, you started the fire, now we're supposed to thank you for putting it out? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. And again, I say this, I know that some people who don't understand where I come from think that that sounds a bit snarky, but I lived in that world and I did those things and I understand how it easily it happens. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the, I mean, the medical system, uh, it's it's a real work in progress, <laughs> but I feel like we talk. <laughs> it's not, it's not. It's not. I'll, 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 go ahead, you finish, and then I'll elaborate. <laughs> I know you had talked about it, or maybe I saw it on Instagram, and no, I think it was Instagram, and someone said that you, we're never going to fix this broken system. It's, it's never going to be fixable. I used no. to think it was fixable. I used to think you could change it. Yes. It's not fixable. It's only getting worse. And the reason it's not fixable, Angel, is not because the, it, it's it's bad. It is, but it's not. That's why it's not, because it's not fixable because it's working for the people who designed the system. Mm, right. Someone's benefiting from it. They're benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. Right. The control of of medicine is to control your life, and mm -hmm. there are people who are benefiting from this, and they will cling to it with the most intense fervor you've ever seen, even when they know it's failing. Right. Because, because there's an advantage to them in doing that. Right. And that's why I just don't think that you're going to see this change. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they beat up people who want to make change and, yes. go, and, and, and go backwards right. where we left right. people alone. And it wasn't a profit thing. And the scary thing about it, too, is the takeover of medicine by corporate or government. Mm. You know, the, the video you asked me to watch, which we, maybe we'll get to, 
she kept talking about well a couple of times she kept talking about the benefits of universal health care and it's like yeah. you are you are a stage one thinker okay yeah. because you don't understand that yes everyone should get health care but what kind of health care are we talking about right yes talking about ration health care crappy health care where the healthcare workers are employees mm-hmm. and employees by nature don't don't care as much and mm-hmm. secondly they also have divided fiduciary duty or divided um, um so who, who are they responsible to right as a private practitioner i'm responsible to my client who hires me mm. as a physician who works for a major hmo or or government hospital or the va i'm responsible to the people that hired me not right. the person that is on the bed in front of me mm. right i can pretend that i'm responsible to one in bed for me but if i want to do something or she wants me to do something that's outside the guidelines or the algorithms that i'm that are set by my administration and I go along with them, I'm going to be in trouble. Right. So these people are not advocating for you. They're funneling you down a path and they've acquiesced to it because mm-hmm. physicians that go in that system. Now, look, at I'm not talking about the individual physician who cares deeply, I'm talking right. about the individual physician who cares deeply, who's stuck in a box and can't get out. Right. Because you can't do in six minute visit what you can do in a 60 minute visit. You can't tell somebody they can't have a VBAC or they have to be induced by 41 weeks and think that you're doing an okay job because, because the hospital says you have to deliver them by 41 weeks or you have to section all breaches. Mm-hmm. And, that, and so you do your counseling to get them to do that as opposed to supporting them with honest information. Right. And you can see it happening in my state, my former state, actually. I just moved to Utah. I'm very excited about it. Um, <laughs> I left California after 40 years. And part of the reason I left, it's not the only reason, but part of the reason I left is that they're making it really, really hard to be an independent practitioner, an independent pharmacist um, in my state. They're, they're creating more and more layers of bureaucracy that are not hard for a large corporation to, to handle because they have people that can do that. But for an individual doctor's office, calling in prescriptions now is more of a pain. You can't do it anymore. You have to do everything electronically. Um, uh, filling out disability forms, you can't do it. It has to be done electronically. Now you have to do it through facial recognition systems. Um, wow. there, it's, it's, it's more bureaucracy. It's more paperwork. It's not about safety. Safety is always used as a canard um to make people believe that what you're doing is for their own benefit mm-hmm. it's not right always follow the money always look and see who's benefiting all right there was yeah. nothing wrong with the old prescription system mm. you know they just took over the uh the newborn uh, the non-invasive prenatal testing system as they did to the afp and quad screen system 30 20 25 years ago they right. took it over why, why are they taking it over from private companies? Hmm. Was there a problem? No, they're taking it over so they can create, they can generate revenue for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Does the government, does the government ever do anything better <laughs> than a private company does? Does something bigger ever do it better than a small business does? Right, who has usually has a more intimate relationship with the people that they serve. Yeah, well, right. and- Try reaching a human being, try calling your mortgage company by <laughs> calling Amazon and getting a human being. Right. Yeah. yeah. It take, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. I can I can go on about Amazon. But like, so that actually kind of brings me to this. Somebody brought this up when I like again when I was talking about like, hey, I'm gonna have Dr. Sue. Someone actually wanted to understand Ohio's, and I don't know. I don't know if you know anything about Ohio or anything like that. Yeah. But it's we have no birth centers here zero there are zero birth centers your option is a home birth or hospital and it's we no one no one really knows all of the details but we also have two very major hospitals in the area we've got cleveland clinic which that's a powerhouse if you've known anything about cleveland clinic and we have university hospital um here in cleveland and we we just can't, we haven't been able to get a birth center here. There seems to be some split between some of the midwives, maybe some of the hospitals thoughts. I don't know, like how, how is that going to affect 
you know, people's choices. Like how do how do we as doulas and midwives, how do we kind of work with a system that <laughs> won't give moms options? I mean, there's this whole battle with like midwives here. They're trying to, you know, uh, have midwives, uh, home birth midwives, you know, register with the state and things like that. And I'm just like, I disagree with that. They're trying to do it with doulas here. So there's a lot of regulation and, and control just being happy, yes. just starting to happen here. And there's a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, like, yes, let's get doulas on insurance companies. Let's have med health, you know, home birth midwives regulated by the state. And I'm just like, you guys have no idea. That's such a bad idea. Yeah, they know. They have, they have no idea what they're, what they're getting into. It, it's like, it's like um, the analogy that I heard, I saw on uh, Instagram recently. It was like, yes, and the trees voted for the ax because the axe told them that it was made of wood and convinced them that he, that he was on their side. Okay. <laughs> like, no, no. You, you, the more regulation you get, the more regulated you get. It's just the way it goes. And people think, well, we need regulation. No. When has the government ever regulated something that's gotten better? I mean, there are probably examples. Everybody can find it. Maybe, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't think of one off the top of my head. And usually my head is pretty quick at these sorts of things. But let's go back talk a little bit about midwives and birthing centers and home birth and stuff like that because some people think that a birthing center there's a freestanding birthing center run by midwives is like an intermediary between a home and a hospital birth and it's not there's nothing that a, mid, a freestanding birth center has in it that's really different than what we bring to a home birth it's a place to go sometimes because it's more a better location maybe it's two blocks from a hospital maybe they have a nicer birth tub um but as far as everything else if it's truly a freestanding center and not a hospital run birth center which is a oxymoron actually um uh then it really doesn't have any difference so the desire to have a birth center people need to be clear why they're picking that they're picking it because maybe they have very thin walls maybe their their grandmother lives with them and they don't want to have the home birth with their grandmother there you know, maybe they have six kids and they just want to get away and have the baby at a birth center. That's fine. But don't think you're going to a birth center because there's a higher level of acuity there that they can take care of you better there than we can do at home. Because that's not true for a freestanding midwife-run birth center. Why Ohio doesn't do that? I don't know. My guess is that it's either legislatively or bureaucratically, it's it's too intense and too involved for anyone, any small midwife practice to try to do it there's probably too many hoops to jump through and it's, and because otherwise there would be a market for it i'm sure of it um but that's not what's going to happen and if it hasn't happened and then i you know our states and i don't know the different states and legisl legislation in every state is different so i don't know the rules in ohio i don't know what they are but but jumping in for going for licensure is it obviously and you said it clearly it's a very two-edged sword um, it may give you legitimacy, but then you will surrender your control. And you know that, well, I think it was Ben Franklin or somebody who said, those who give up liberty for more safety uh, deserve neither or will achieve neither. Um, if you, when you give up liberty, when you give up your freedom, to, you know, to just, just, they'll take an inch, but once they have their foot in the door, it's like, the, I'm using all different, these different analogies, but it's like the camel's nose under the tent. They now have control over you. Once you start taking insurance, Insurance companies can dictate what you're worth. Exactly. Yeah. They can pretty much hold over your head like, hey, and, and that's like that kind of goes back to what you said. Like you don't serve the clients anymore. You're serving, you know, the medical system because with the insurance companies, it's like if you do something that steps out of the line or if the provider doesn't like what you do and they report you to the insurance company, you could lose your ability to have that insurance. And so you're walking a really, really... <laughs> really really thin line and so then we have the control of the doulas and we're limiting advocacy and all that not so great stuff yeah when, when a hospital tries to be progressive and you know they all went they, like for example they all went mother baby friendly it was a big thing they all tried to get this i don't know if it's a organization or whatever else but they tried to get the label of mother baby friendly and the minute that COVID hit you saw how important mother baby friendly was because it went right out the window. And the same thing with, uh, they try to, they try to say, well, listen, uh, there are people that can't afford to have a doula. So we're going to have a doula service at our hospital, which sounds lovely and nice. And, 
It might be for some degree, but then you have to realize that who does this, who's the doula employed by? And the doula is employed by the hospital. Is the doula actually going to advise the client against something that the hospital wants to do? If they do that, they're likely not to bid a paycheck the following month. I know. Well, it's so funny because we have, it's so funny. We have the, we have the birth centers with the hospitals, like the hospital birth centers, like, like you said, we also have one hospital that had a volunteer doula program. Although I don't, I don't think since COVID they eliminated it. Like you, like you said, <laughs> um, I know. Right. But I, I'm a childbirth educator for one of the local hospitals. I also have my own private practice, but I have like had providers like call my boss. And luckily I have an amazing, amazing boss who's just like, look, this is what's in the curriculum. We're just telling the truth. But I've had providers like call my boss, like, what is she teaching them? They're asking questions. They're asking questions about, you know, why can't, somebody be in the room with an epidural or like, why, why do we need uh, to have an IV line and things like that? They're asking questions. What is she teaching? <laughs> so even as a childbirth educator working underneath the hospital, it's, it's tough. Like you, I have to tell them the truth, but at the same time, I'm getting, you know, you know, backlash from the hospital for speaking the truth that they want me, that they hired me to do. <laughs> Right. So this is this is the problem. This is why I'm saying another reason is the system is not fixable. It's not fixable. They they want to control everything. This gets back to the, the, the midwifery model versus the obstetric model of, of care. The the midwifery model trusts birth. It understands that there's uncertainty in birthing. And so it surrenders to it and it and it wants to follow what nature designed. And because they're good at knowing what's normal, they can easily recognize abnormal and refer when necessary. And this is something that my colleagues in OB don't know because they don't know really much about the midwifery model of care. The medical model of care is fears birth, sees it as a medical problem. And because they don't like uncertainty, they try to control everything. And in the process of controlling everything, <laughs> they cause all kinds of chaos. Right, they just do. and But it's their chaos, so it's acceptable chaos, as opposed to the rare chaos that may occur from a home birth, which is unacceptable chaos. This is, this is where it goes. I mean, this, this is the thing I told my kids. My kids don't listen to me. They're, you know, they're all grown anyway. But, but I, you know, they all, I, one of the things I always told them was, you know, whatever job you have, don't be licensed by the state to do it. People say, did you, did you want your kids to go into medicine? It's like, absolutely not, All right? But, but when you're licensed by the state to do it, the state has ultimate authority over you. And the example that I use is if, say you go to a party and you're driving home and you get pulled over and you're above the legal limit, you know, 0 0.8 or whatever it is. Um, if, I'm a, if you're a licensed practitioner, whether it's law, real estate, medicine, hairdressing, whatever, the state is going to be notified and the state will then have a hearing and they'll decide whether or not you can continue to practice your trade. But if you work for Nordstrom's, if you work in the entertainment industry, if you work for the Cleveland Indi uh, Cleveland Guardian, excuse me, <laughs> the Cleveland Guardian, um, you can go to work the next day. And yeah, you can tell yep, people, yeah, yeah, I got a DUI and we're sorry, I got to go to court and I got to do services, whatever. You're not going to lose your job, right? Most likely, anyway. They don't. They don't have that power over you. Surrendering that power is the is the key to slavery. It, you, I mean, it's it it is. You will become an indentured servant with very little control over your your life. You'll be told yeah. how much you're going to make. You'll be told how many hours you're going to work. You'll be told how many patients you're going to see. You're going to be told what you can tell them. You're going to be told what you can prescribe. You're going to be told what surgeries you can offer, what surgeries you can't offer. You're going to say, "Well, we don't do that here." And then, would you, then you, and so your job is to tell them, "Well, if you don't do it here, I'm going to refer you over to that other place." But that HMO doesn't want to pay that other place, so they're going to tell you not to say that. This is right. kind of, so California just passed a terrible law called Assembly Bill 2098 which we call it the, the muzzle the doctor law, which says that the doctors in California starting January 1st, if they tell a woman to not get the COVID vaccine while she's pregnant, which by the way, no one should, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you that right now as a licensed physician in California, no one who's pregnant should get that shot. We already know that it doesn't really work much and probably has negative efficacy and probably has more side effects than we'll know and we'll find out as the decades go by. But there's no reason to get it at that age. A 25-year-old healthy woman is not going at this point to never get that shot. But if I say that, or if I tell you you've got early COVID and here, here's a prescription for some ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, I am guilty of unprofessional, excuse me, of, of um, so is it, yeah, like unprofessional conduct and can lose my license in California now. Yeah. Now, if I was a patient in California and I knew my doctor was okay with that law, how could I trust my doctor to tell me anything that's true? Right, exactly. Yeah, Why I, I actually, yeah, I have a, well, I have a friend, she's a geriatric uh, doctor and she was telling me during the COVID pandemic that there are a lot of providers on the down low I mean, they're not going to say anything, right? They can't say anything that really disagreed with what was going on during COVID and the promotion of COVID and not giving their patients a choice. And she told me, like, if they went out, prescribed anything outside of the CDC, and there was some, there was some, di- there was different things that doctors did feel that would be better than what the CDC was recommending. If they went outside of that, they could get their license taken away. It was it's, it was absolutely yeah, crazy. Yeah, and by the way, that, that's evil. That's evil. Um, we use off-label prescriptions all the time. They were wanting you to take uh, a vaccine that was untested or remdesivir, which kills people. And they were vilifying uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which have a huge long safety track record and are both used in pregnancy. Um, and they were doing this uh, because in, if... If, there, if you could use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, then there would be no need for the emergency use authorization mm-hmm. and it would nullify it. And then they, the vaccine wouldn't have been approved. So again, follow the money, follow the evil. And you, you think you can change the system? Uh, yeah, and people are figuring it out. And that's why people are looking for alternatives. They're moving to red states. They're setting up communities with like-minded people. They're going off grid. They're setting up an alternative economy. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got different, you know, some pay things like uh, PayPal and um, um, and uh, what's the fund? GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. They 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 will di- they will deplatform you if you um, speak the wrong ideas. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's not their job, and that's not their business. So right. people are going to go elsewhere because they don't want to have that uh, hovering over them. They don't want to be controlled. There is about you know more than half the population doesn't care. Right. Yeah. They don't care. They go to, you know, that they can go to their uh, their concert on Friday night and they can, um, you know, they can still have a refrigerator full of stuff and they've got their uh, uh, Xbox. They're fine. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't really care about it until they grow up and they get older and they start having children and they realize that Johnny was fine until he got that vaccine. Yeah. I have, or, yes. or, you know, or, or Sally came home from school talking to me about you know drag queen story hour and right. and, and whether you want that or not it's, it's not the schools or the government's decision to do these things right in my opinion mm-hmm. some people are for it and that's fine you can be for it but don't mm-hmm. force it on other people we're not forcing you to, to not have it you shouldn't mm-hmm. be forcing us to have it right and vice versa and it's the same thing with breach i mean we could get back to the topic it's the same thing with things like breach birth breach birth is a very reasonable option the world literature supports it. Mm-hmm. Field practitioners know it, um, and yet it's still something that has been vilified and pushed to the sidelines, um, and not for reasons of safety. And right. yet that you'll be told, and it, you know because people don't know what they're doing. Yeah, you know, listen, people don't know what they're doing. Maybe it is safer to have a C-section, but it's not safer to have a C-section than a vaginal delivery with somebody who knows what they're. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. So, Dr. Sue, you've given us so much information and a lot of things to talk about and consider and probably have blown people's minds a little bit. It's been so fun talking to you. However, we're running out of time. Oh, gosh. But I've loved talking to you and we're just going to have to make a part two or even a part three, because we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. So. 
Yeah, I mean, we just scratched the surface of it, and there really is so much to talk about, and I love sharing, you know, what I would consider wisdom. I mean, other people consider it the uh, insanity, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, I, I think it, I think one person's wisdom is another person's insanity, but um, yes. I, I would love to share more. I mean, we didn't really even get into breach birth itself or twin birth, and uh, we can talk about so many other topics that, you know, it's a lot of the gaslighting that's going on and Yes. in medicine and it's gone on in obstetrics um you know for centuries uh, and it's still going on and you know things that are are, are not factual are, are being represented as factual and you said with such fervor is that whole thing you know if you don't have the facts you pound the table and if you pound the table and you do it repetitively and often enough it becomes you know it becomes part of the right look at how many times today that I probably slipped up too, but I, I heard you use the word provider. And provider is one of those words where it's now it's now hopeless. I, it's it's another battle I've lost because the word provider was a term that was brought up by it was created by insurance companies to distance people from the doctor-patient relationship. You know, I, I mean, a midwife has a title. You're a doula. You're not a provider. I'm a physician. I'm a physician. I'm not a provider. You know, a lawyer is not a provider of legal services. Uh, you know, you have a title and, and they've taken it away because, they, again, it's part of the whole corporatization of things and the, and the minimization of the individual. So we got lots that we can talk about. And I look forward to doing that. So it's fun for me to have um, the forum to, to get out there and talk. And if you want to get me to Cleveland, that's fine. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. I'm a, there's a, like I said, you have a little fan base here in Cleveland. <laughs> I didn't know about it. I was like, oh, cool. So. We're definitely gonna get you out here. There's a there's a lot. We've got a good home birth uh, system out here, and um, a lot of great doulas and a few medical providers that'd be interested. So, well, we'll have to I'll have to keep my audience updated <laughs> on what's going on with getting Dr. Stu out here. <laughs> yeah, so, that'd be great. That would be great. So let's we'll do this again when we whenever you set it up. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, everyone. If you've been listening to this. Um, I'm going to add some of the things that we've talked about um, from Dr. Sue's podcast. He talked about the breach term trial. Um, I know he's got a few episodes on that. So I'm going to link that in the show notes so that you guys can go and listen to that. Um, and outside of that, guys, it's been amazing having you guys share this experience with us. And we'll talk to you all later. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed making it. Our journey doesn't need to end here. Don't forget to hit that bell button to get alerts on any new episodes. And if you like what you hear, give the podcast a five-star review. The best time to start preparing for a better birth is during pregnancy. I've curated a checklist to help you prepare for this fear-free, in-control, informed delivery you're looking for. We've included things like when to start planning for your baby shower, when to start buying baby items, and I've even divided everything by trimester. You can get the checklist in the show notes. You can also take my quiz on how to avoid a C-section and get tips on how you can avoid getting an unnecessary C-section. Just head to my website and click the banner.